Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm Clive Anderson. Welcome to My Seven Wonders. In ancient times, hanging gardens, great pyramids and other superstructures were celebrated as wonders of the world. And like days of the week and deadly sins, there were always seven of them. But what are the seven wonders you've put on your personal list? That's the question I ask my guests in this podcast and on this stage. And the guest I'm asking today is a comedian. Uh, he's, uh, he does podcasts of his own. He's also a broadcaster. If you happen to listen to Radio 5 Live on Friday afternoons, he does a very entertaining uh, show with Ellis so uh, please welcome uh, to this podcast, uh, John Robbins. John, there we are. There we are. Hello. So, so John. Um, it's just... like that scene in Clockwork Orange. Yeah. <laughs> Very like that. Yeah. Good up-to-date reference. This is excellent. Uh, uh, <laughs> But it's good for us. So uh, I just up you're here in Edinburgh. You come to Edinburgh a lot. You've you've won awards for your for your Edinburgh shows over the years. Uh, what's your show this year? Uh, I'm doing two shows. I'm doing a show called Howl, which is uh, on at a venue called the Atomic at the Nucleus venue, and wow. um, that's about I guess broadly about the process of stopping drinking. All right, and my addressing my behaviours. Yes. And so how long have you not been drinking for? Uh, I'm not sure. Nine months and two days. <laughs> oh, yes, yeah. A round of applause for, for that. For the... it's, it's amazing. You get round of applause for not having done something. Yes. It's not often you get yeah. that. If I came and said, I've, I've yeah. never committed treason. You wouldn't yeah. get people, oh, well done. Well yeah. done. <laughs> but drinking is a hard thing to, to get away from because uh, people press it on you. When you go, you go after a show or before a show, somebody says, well, have a drink. Here's a glass. And you've got to make a positive effort each time to turn it down. Yes, and I think up here in Edinburgh is probably if you were to design an obstacle course, yes, for someone recovering from alcoholism, you would design the Edinburgh Festival and say yeah. stay there for a month. Yeah, um, but it's been okay so, so far. So you didn't think about giving up Edinburgh just to see if that would? <laughs> I think about that every yeah. day <laughs> at about nine fifty-one yeah. p.m. Yeah, uh, my show's at eight fifty. By the way, yeah, if, uh, okay, right. Yeah. Um, but I'm also doing a work in progress show, which is sort of new ideas, and then I'll stitch those two things together uh, for a tour which begins in September. All right, okay, good. I just one more question about the drinking. I don't want to dwell on it because oh, it's no, a, we can dwell it on just, it. It's a very minor aspect of it in, in a way. But if you're in a with a group of people, the traditional thing is that people buy rounds of drinks. Now, if you're not drinking, do you feel compelled to buy? You know six pints of, of beer plus uh, a grapefruit juice for yourself? Or do you say, no, I'm not in this system at the moment because I'm just not drinking, so leave me out? Well, unfortunately, due to um, either the cost of living crisis or unscrupulous licensees, non-alcoholic beer is actually no cheaper. In fact, yeah. I won't name the venue, but I asked for a pint of non-alcoholic beer 
and they said we only do it in bottles so i said okay well i'll have two bottles um so to fill up my pint glass with no alcohol cost me nine pounds so actually i make yeah. a saving when everyone else buys all oh, right oh I see. so they say john you're not drinking so we'll get this and i'm like thank you very much <laughs> have, you, have you spoken to your mortgage advisor yeah. and how do how do they justify that I've, I've i'm familiar with this phenomenon but it's ridiculous because it's all that duty that's paid on alcohol uh, which is not paid on non-alcoholic beer they're, they're just pocketing that for themselves they justify it like all uh, companies by making the person who is actually the point of contact someone who isn't paid very much who is run ragged and who does not deserve any ire whatsoever yeah you know the idea that i'm going to say to an 18 year old student who's working on a bar at one in the morning hang on a second there's yes. no duty on this not that you know yeah. it's not their problem so. All right. Now, just before we get on to the, on the wonders, um, I've seen you described in sort of the, the official category in Wikipedia, for example, is you're an observational comedian. Uh, does that mean you're always looking out for things in life that you can turn into a, a bit of material or does it just come along yes, naturally? I wouldn't call myself an observational comedian. I would say I was a sort of... Um... I, I, is, is anecdotalist too uh, flowery a term? I talk about myself, which sounds yeah. awful. And I tell you what, when when shows don't go very well, you don't have to feel like you're a complete <laughs> fraud. Yeah. A load of people going, he's just banging on about all his problems. Yeah. Um, but when there are laughs there, yes, you know, I try to talk about difficult things. You know, I've talked about relationship breakups. I've talked about mental health. Ellis and I have a podcast called How Do You Cope? Yeah. Where we interview uh, prominent people about struggles they've overcome. And I like the challenge of discussing those things and making them funny. Yeah. And, you know, a, a story about a tale of sort of stopping drinking is, you know, there are funny things we do when we're drunk, yeah. but it's a serious business. You mentioned relations breaking. I think you broke up with another a fellow comedian. So I think you both got the other way around. Other way around. Well, she broke up with you. <laughs> But there was well, a breakup. A breakup do, occurred. Does this all have to go in the podcast? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know. It depends if anything better comes along. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was merely asking that's in a, in a way an extraordinary thing. If, if you happen to be both in the same industry, you can both tell the story from a different point of view and both win awards for them. So. Only one of us won the award. <laughs> I won't press you on to who won the award. No, uh, we uh, always had a huge amount of admiration and respect for each other. And I think the 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 rule uh, of thumb when you're in that situation, and it happens, you know, we often end up with people in our industries that we meet at work, we spend most of our lives at work, uh, is that you, you tell your story, you don't tell someone else's story. Yeah. And that's a really good rule for stand-up. So I don't, I don't tell stories that are are my owned by my family or my friends mm. unless I ask permission from my friends so can I say that about that thing yeah. that happened to us but you know it's my it's always my story to tell okay all right let's get on with the with the podcast then I feel, <laughs> but I, I feel, did win I feel the discomfort award. <laughs> coming here. so your first one your first one takes you in a deeply personal direction anyway yeah, yeah because your first one is T-Bay services mm. uh, which is which is a service station on the M6 uh, as I, I suspect anybody who's who's traveled up on the road from, let's say, London, will be familiar, and maybe, I don't know, let's say particularly this audience, uh, but we be familiar with T-Bay services. Why, I think I know the answer to this, but why have you selected T-Bay services? Well, the reason I selected T-Bay services, because everyone in this room who has been to T-Bay services is now thinking, yep, that's on my list as well. <laughs> because 
we spend our lives angry at the state of service stations and then we get to T-Bay and it's like you have stepped into heaven <laughs> and you every single person who goes there for the first time says the same thing why can't they all be like this yeah. why can't they all be like this and I am someone who loves a service station uh, yeah. my first kiss was at Reading Services Eastbound that, that was you was it <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Clive... You... I've changed. Yeah. The age gap is slightly problematic. Yeah. <laughs> but... Oh, well, nowadays you can't do anything. <laughs> it was a different time. Yeah. Whose line is it anyway was at its peak? Yeah. I was smitten. Whose crime is it anyway? Well, now you're quite... <laughs> so, um, I love... I think they're called... They are very pretentious names. It's either liminal spaces or non-spaces. Those places that are identical to each other where sort of all humanity is here yeah. so i love um chain hotels the corridors with pictures that you think who chose that awful picture yeah. i love um i love airports because i i'm someone who gets to an airport four hours early so i don't find it stressful even though that in itself then does become stressful because you're angry that, that you're there so early but yeah you know and someone who just sort of has left it with 15 minutes and their passports falling out of their pocket. You think, how are they okay? You know, yeah. how am I more worried about their admin than mine? Yeah. Um, but service stations, you know, they're too expensive. The selection's bad. If you have certain dietary requirements, service stations can be a nightmare. And then you get to T-Bay and you're like, this is bliss. It's yeah. like stepping through the, the wardrobe into Narnia. And then they opened up a second one, Gloucester, yes. to let people further south sort of see the, the solution to the problem. Have you been to Cairn Lodge? Oh, <laughs> Cairn Lodge. That's even better. because Cairn Lodge is amazing. It's, it was always quite a good service station, but it's much better now it's been taken over by TB. And it's a bit smaller and less crowded. So I uh, would go to Cairn Lodge as my holiday. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I stopped at TB on the way up here. And because I talk about it quite a lot, oh, you wonder why I'm single. I talk about T-Bay quite a bit and I was in T-Bay and uh, someone who listens to our show tapped me on the shoulder and he said, oh my God, it's John Robbins in T-Bay. <laughs> it was like he'd seen me in my natural home. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's got an incredible view of the, the mountains. Yeah. It's got ducks. It's got... It's. I mean, yeah. what what more could he want? Mountains, ducks, and well, a pork pie. You're definitely pushing an open door on this one because uh, it, it's got a lot to say. I'm often I often travel up and down the M6, then the M74, and I'm often looking for a, a nice place to stop. And I've got a dog usually, so it's good to have somewhere you can walk the dog around. Not all of them require, but other, the others are getting worse. Though if you, I did figure out they they're not getting improving up to standard. They're now late night ones. There's hardly anything open, and you have to order on a. Pressing on a, a machine or, or this that, this habit for ordering on screens. I went to a coffee shop in Edinburgh, and you walk in and there's a there's the counter with everyone making the coffee that you walk up to, and they just sort of don't look at you. And you think if I if I upset these people, <laughs> and you say, "Oh, can I get a coffee?" and they're like, "Oh, you order over there," and you go to these screens and to to order a black coffee, I had to go through so many menus. Yeah. Did I want syrup? Did I want cream? Did I want uh, did I want all of this stuff? Did I want it cold? 
Yeah. No. <laughs> um, and it just took so long. So it's like going to Argos. And you've got to press it. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So I'm I'm not really one for screen ordering. And also sometimes I want to adapt it in a way that isn't on the screen. I mean, yeah. ideally, I want control of the whole. I want to be able to hop the counter and make it myself. All oh, right. Yeah. Um, well, well, fast fast food and fast coffee is much slower than, than it used to be when there were just a couple of options. Mm. And uh, since it all tastes pretty disgusting a lot of the time anyway, why don't they just go back to that? But this is an old man's sort of thing. I Just just give us a coffee yeah. and a little jug of milk and I'll decide on the rest of it. Um, okay, it doesn't really need to be frothed, does it? Yes. Anyway, so <laughs> In anyway, fact, so, well, I, I visited Gloucester Services, the, I think the day it opened. And when I say visited... Did you open it? Were no, you no, the, no. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't mean visited it because it was on my way. I drove to it. And... Um, <laughs> Oh, this I, is getting dangerously obsessive now. That, that, that. And I, because I was so excited because the other, the big four, Moto, Welcome Break, Road Chef, and uh, I forget the other name of the other one. They they kept trying to block the application for Gloucester Services because they didn't want people to know that this sort of thing was possible. Yes. I, I went there and I put it on my Instagram stories, uh, a sort of a little review and it made the Gloucester Evening News. <laughs> and the headline was Comedian Visit Services. Yeah. Which I thought was very Big, nice. Slow news day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it was there a is slow the one, day for me. Is, is T-Bay the, the wonder, or is it the wonder is that the, all the other ones can't do anything even half as good? I think it's the wonder is that it's possible. And a bit like how it must have been when the first person put wheels on a suitcase. Yeah. You just go, Oh, yeah. Why not give people a pleasant experience? Yeah. I have one quibble. I am, I am absolutely agreeing with one quibble. I stopped at, I think it was T-Bay rather than Cairn Lodge, but it, it, I think it applies to either. They didn't have anywhere you could buy a newspaper. I'm old enough to, when I'm stopping on my own and having a cup of coffee or a meal, I like to get a newspaper and do the crossword. And uh, they don't sell them there. You have to go to the, uh, the petrol station bit before you can get them. I can't be bothered uh, to go and do that. I mean, that's the one tiny, tiny fly in the ointment of T-Bay. Once they get that sorted out, it will definitely be a wonder of the world, uh, without any doubt. Yes, I mean, I wouldn't expect that many people are stopping at a services long enough to do a crossword. Well, I don't say I get the whole thing done. Oh, I, go, okay. I, I stop several times, <laughs> and as long as I pick up uh, one of my daughters to help me do it, I get it done. But that's... <laughs> All right, so that's your, that was your first wonder. Uh, your next wonder goes it's onto Ronnie O'Sullivan. Yes. Who, I mean, I, since I only get the name, I'm assuming you meaning Ronnie O'Sullivan, the snooker player. Yes. Not some friend of yours who runs a bar down the road called Ronnie mm -hmm. O'Sullivan. No, um, I've been watching Ronnie O'Sullivan play snooker since I was 11 years old and I'm now 41 and he is still playing snooker at the highest standard anyone has ever played snooker. And it has been one of the great pleasures of my life yeah. to have spent 30 years watching him play snooker. And it's been a roller coaster and sometimes he is a pain but when he plays snooker like no one else can, it's it's just awe-inspiring. Awe, awe, awe I mean, I, I, not a, it's difficult. If you're someone who doesn't like sport, I totally understand why, because it's pointless. That's the, that's the reason sport matters so much, in a sense, is because it is completely pointless. We've just invented it to invent something to care about. But 
I don't think he is paralleled. I don't think there is anything like him in any sport. I was trying to think of parallels. Uh, I, uh, these aren't always sports I follow, but but uh, so Phil the Power Taylor played darts for a long while. He was regarded as like the absolute best there'd ever been. Do, mm. do, would you ever watch darts or was that so off beam from snooker? I, that... I played darts at university. To a high level? Yeah. Oh, right. I, I, near, I did actually make the university team and um, they played in the varsity match one year, which was hosted for one year only at the lakeside before the World Championship. Wow. They so actually... there's an Oxford and Cambridge yeah. darts match and at the lakeside. The standard yeah. was so poor that at one point the scorer sat down. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 100 and... No, 18. Well, yeah. I don't know if you... if Anyone who plays darts will know that if you're playing badly, you always end up on double one. Yes. Because it's, you mean you've just you've eventually... Got, you've tried everywhere. Yeah, yeah. And both teams were just... Double one, bust, double one, bust, double one, bust. And the scorer sat down yeah. on the stage. So they didn't do that again. Um, so do you get a, did you get a, a blue or a half blue for that? No, I'm afraid oh, not. Right. Okay. Just on the, I was on the sheet, but uh, wasn't, what didn't make it to the, uh, to the humiliation. Um, but Ronnie O'Sullivan won his first major tournament. And there are three majors in snooker, whereas there are four in most sports. So the comparison to win, okay. he's won, um, uh, 21 majors, seven of each, I think, pretty sure. And uh, he won his first in 1993. So he's got a winning span of 29 years. Yeah. I mean, p people who don't like snooker should find that even more impressive because, I mean, he's had to play snooker for 29 years. Well, but he's, he's often rather rude about the sport himself. He says, what a waste of time it's been and people should yep. do other things. I think he said uh, if his children, I don't know how many children he's got, thought about taking up snooker he would definitely stop them doing it yeah which is sort of an odd thing because they're likely to be good at it uh, if they're his son or daughter yes i think he i mean like i said watching him has been a roller coaster he's retired or threatened retirement he worked in a uh he took a year out when he didn't play a single match and worked in a pig farm to yeah. sort of sort his head out then he came back and won the world championship yeah. after a year of not playing snooker yeah that is uh, there, there is no way that could happen in any other sport. No, I the, the idea yeah. that you know, I don't know whether like the Liverpool football team just sort of hang out for a year, not practicing, yes. and then turn up and win the Premier League, or that uh, Rory McIlroy goes sod this, doing my head in, and yeah. goes away. The first time he picks up a club, he wins the the Open. Yeah, um, it's. It's bizarre. He says some bizarre things. Yeah, he comes to slightly. I mean, he has a, um, a difficult background because his father was in prison for a long time for, for murder, not, yep. not not just some sort of accumulation of, um, you know, white collar crime or something. Proper a proper evil crime. His his mum was in prison uh, for tax evasion. Um, you know, he came from a really difficult environment. Yeah. But he uh, was I mean, encouraged to play snooker as a child, right from the word go. You yeah. say he's had that long, but I think he started playing. It was about seven or eight or something, which yeah. is, I don't know how you can do that. He's uh, he's won, he's equaled Stephen Hendry's record for world titles, which no one ever thought would happen. He's got the fastest ever 147, which will never be broken. He's got more 147s than anyone else. Yeah, He's got, I think, more Masters titles than more UK titles. I mean, yeah. I don't know where does it stop. And, yeah. and I think also... It's quite inspiring for people who are older 
to watch him wipe the floor with an 18 year old when he's yeah. 40 i think he's 43 now 45 yeah. 46 Ancient i'm not sure 43 year old <laughs> i'm very impressed by that i must say well but, but i don't actually quite understand why snooker players do sort of stop at a given age it doesn't look like a sport that uh, you need sort well, of I, muscle I, mass or or anything like that i think life gets in the way you know if you you have to practice seven hours a day it's boring it's intense when you get to later life, that ability to focus and obsess about things does sort of perhaps yeah. go slightly. Sure. Yeah, that's true. Um, but is snooker that... a game? I'm sorry, is snooker a sport that that seems to throw up you know, every time somebody comes on? They seem to be the better than the ones before. That when I was young, you know, Steve Davis was around and he was like a machine and regarded as a bit boring and unbeatable. Then Stephen Hendry came along and surpassed him in pretty well everything. And now, now you know, Ronnie, Ronnie O'Sullivan's clearly swept everybody aside so yeah, maybe no be one's somebody... come up and no. he's said that a few times it's embarrassing i mean i shouldn't be winning the world title at 45 or whatever it was and what's what's unique about him is you always had characters you always had talented players who could play shots that no one else could play but they burnt out or they underachieved so like uh alex higgins jimmy white these yeah. mercurial talents just disappeared <laughs> yeah. or you know, Jimmy White, I think, lost six finals. Ronnie is the only one of those who, over the years, has found a way to dominate and amaze. Because right. Stephen, Stephen Hendry, there's my favourite moment in sport, is a shot Ronnie O'Sullivan played. I think it was in the semi-final of the, the World Snooker Championship that took part in COVID. And he's playing against Mark Selby. And he always said, if I come up against Mark Selby ever again, I'm not, I'm not going to be dragged down to his type of game. So he just wh hits the balls everywhere. Yeah. And Mark Selby said, this is disrespectful. He plays a shot so good that in commentary, Stephen Hendry goes, oh... <laughs> before his commentary brain has yeah. clicked in to go yeah. what's he doing I need to explain yeah. this with the viewer there is a moment where he cannot as a snooker fan just go oh and I play back that sound yeah. I mean if you're in the next room it must sound like I'm watching something strange yes but just hearing that reaction from Stephen Hendry watching a genius at work is oh. fantastic yeah, it's a strange sport, though, isn't it? Is it so fits on a television screen uh, that, <laughs> yeah. that I wonder? Yeah, I mean, it, if, if television hadn't come along, I wonder if anyone would pay any attention at all. Because the, what's the joy of sitting in the crucible or, or anywhere else where, you, where you've got to keep quiet and you watch a, a thing going on? Uh, would, would you go and watch it live? Or I, it, I watched Ronnie O'Sullivan make his 775th century, which broke the record for the most centuries. That was against, I think, Marco Fu at Alexandra Palace. I don't go to much live sport because as much as I love sport, I don't like big crowds. Yeah. Um, so Edinburgh this year has been a joy. <laughs> uh, no, but I, I, I like to be in my house with access to a toilet, access to a yeah. fridge. Yes. Uh, I'm not sure a lot of people would, would travel very far to go and look at a snooker thing until it came on the television and then you could focus it. it well, it doesn't on, work on radio. Golf, which, I, I, it doesn't work on radio. Like golf, which I always think is ridiculous on television. It just doesn't. There's too much of, a, of an area to cover and the ball flies off and it's all in commentary until you get onto the putting green. Whereas snooker, it's all there in front of you and you can, you can see it. 
and it makes yes. it look easier to to do than it actually is when you get because it's bigger close up obviously yeah and then everyone immediately books into their local snooker hall and finds out it's impossible and then goes <laughs> home everyone plays snooker for about an hour a year just yes, after the world championship yeah, yeah and then then wimbledon comes along as they get onto the tennis courts for another all right so uh, ronnie o'sullivan uh, a wonder of the world your next one takes you to a different area durham cathedral mm. I, oh, no, that got a small round of applause there. Uh, I yeah. think that was somebody who drives up via T-Bay to go to um, <laughs> Durham Cathedral. Slightly complicated route, but anyway. Um, it's, it's wonderful to see you, Archdeacon. <laughs> um, so I, when I was young, uh, uh, my, I brought up by a single mum, didn't have much money. She was working two or three jobs most of the time. So our yearly holiday was one holiday and we would go to Durham every year. And we would stay in the, she went to university there. Uh, my sister went to university there. So we would stay in the castle, uh, which was like just a, like a and b type affair with student rooms. Yeah. And that's opposite the cathedral. And you've got this wonderful uh, sort of square of grass and then this, you know, incredible cathedral. So I have very fond memories of, of Durham Cathedral. But I think... More, I like cathedrals in general. My stepdad, who passed away this year, loved photographing them. And his great obsession, I mean, all, all stepdads have a great obsession. And his was well, to- What do you think about that, that thought? More than uh, just regular dads? Well, uh, yeah, there's something about stepdad energy. Okay. Uh, you know, he loved things like uh, talking about automatic diesels. Yes. For me, that's very stepdad energy. Okay. Um, I think we've probably got quite a few in the room. Uh, but just that sort of fascination with uh, the mundane, shall we say. But yeah. uh, anyway, his, he, his great obsession was trying to find a way of taking photos of pillars so that the lines didn't converge. All right. So he sort of spent his whole life searching for different lenses to stop this sort of trick of the eye happening, yeah. uh, which I didn't understand. So we went to quite a few cathedrals. And Durham is the most impressive, um, for, personally for me, and especially the way it appears on the hill. I, I couldn't help but put myself in the mind of someone in the 13th century, yeah. you know, walking or riding a horse from Canterbury to Durham to suddenly see this thing. It was yeah. the tallest building in the world when it was built. Yes. To see it, the, the majesty of it must have been extraordinary. It, it fell into the mud and they built it again. Um, and I kind of think, on a serious note, we've lost something of the quality of silence that you get in cathedrals. I don't think silence plays a big enough part in our lives. So this year at Edinburgh has been a joy. <laughs> but um, I really do value silence enormously. And do you get a religious uh, experience in it? Because it's been a site of religion since before the cathedral was built, before the, you know, in Saxon times. Yeah. The church there, so. I mean, I associate religion with people messing it up. So I associate religion with people saying, God told me this. And then the next thing they say is something they want you to do. Um, so I don't really trust people in charge of religion. But I do get a sense of awe and power as much in that how hard it must have been to build mm. and the skill and the time. I mean, decades, hundreds of years to build these things. And we don't 
I mean, HS2 is maybe yeah. an example. Yeah. Yeah. But we don't have those projects anymore, and we no longer build things just for the sake of going. Can we swear on this podcast? I, I, you, you can do. You, uh, we no longer yeah. build things for the sake of looking at them and going, fuck me. <laughs> you know, that's amazing. Yes. Um, but I do get a sense of, of power from them. I remember going to Lincoln Cathedral before a gig, and Lincoln Cathedral is extraordinary. And I just remember thinking there are more there there are more people in the Starbucks that I've just got my coffee from in Lincoln than are in this cathedral, and it's yeah. free. Yeah. And the I don't know the name of the the religious figure who obviously works at the cathedral, but he was saying a prayer for I think it was during the Afghanistan war, saying a prayer for people who died. And I thought, regardless of your religious beliefs, whether you have none or despise it, or whatever. The idea that someone is just there, someone is having that thought somewhere to think about other people, to allow people a place for silent reflection, whether that is on your life or other people's lives or on how lucky you are or how unfortunate other people are. I, I find that really moving. Yeah. And the, the, the quality of the silence is something about it. Um, I don't like loud noises. I don't like busy places that much. So to sit and actually feel what silence is, mm. is we don't get a chance to do that as much anymore. You can probably achieve that more easily in just visiting churches and villages. Yeah. Sometimes there's an extraordinarily large church in a wool church or something in a mm. village that used to be supported by lots of people. And now it's just the occasional visitor during the week just going in and sitting in complete silence. Yeah. 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 Um, more than a cathedral where there's... I didn't say money changes, but, but there the is, temple, there's but there a little are, bit more back yeah, and forth. Yeah. But you, you can still get those. But because the space is bigger, it's like the the silence is is bigger in a sense. But yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, any old building, if it's empty, um, any majestic building. Yeah. But I do I do think there is something special about cathedrals. And obviously Durham Cathedral is a very special cathedral, but it's special to you because of the fact that you used to go there mm. on, on your holiday. Was there a reason for going there on holiday? Was there, were there grandparents or something you visited? Uh, it was my mum's university town. And, um, you know, we that's what we could afford was a, a train for me and her um, to go up there. And I remember on the train always being excited about the little, I mean, the things that annoy you in adult life that mm. were just magical as a kid, that the burger that you would get on the train, that the the chap would put inside a microwave and press a button and it would ping and you would get a burger out. I thought this was just incredible. <laughs> uh, we didn't have a microwave. Yeah. And, um, you know, if he'd, if he'd had a video player, God, my, wow, <laughs> extraordinary that would have been. I didn't go on a plane until I was, I think, 15. Um, so, yeah, and also that the train journey up and in a sense, unless you live in a cathedral city, any trip there is a sort of a pilgrimage. Mm. And the train up always now reminds me of that Philip Larkin poem, The Wits and Weddings. Yes. Where he's talking about the little glimpses he sees of people on the train journey. You know, uh, I think uh, one of them is someone running up to bowl. Yeah. Such a great image of yeah. what you see when you're when you're driving through the country. And um, yeah, so I, I, I find it all quite... Um, Quite moving, quite well, wonderful. Well, it is moving. I, I, I had a, a sort of religious experience. I'm lowering the tone, I'm afraid, but I had a religious experience on my way to Durham. I was going to speak in a debate there, and I had food poisoning, and I got on the train, and the uh, the toilets at either end of the were in use. 
and I needed to be in one of those. And uh, I don't know exactly what form of words I used, but it was a sort of silent prayer. And the door opened, somebody came out, and I got in just in time. Uh, that, that's, that's all the detail I'll give you of that. But it, <laughs> but it was very vital to get there. So I, I, I maybe offered a, a prayer to, to God. Anyway, I was ill all the way, all the time in, uh, in Durham, uh, just managing to speak with Lord Longford. I mean, these are, really? these are my memories rather than yours. But uh, With Lord Longford? Lord Longford used to go and speak at Durham University a lot because wow. he wanted to visit uh, Myra Hindley, who was in prison up there. These, this is, you, you, some of you must be old enough to remember these figures I'm talking about. There was a film yeah. uh, uh, yeah. about five years ago about Lord Longford. I yeah. think Jim Broadbent yeah. plays him. Oh, yes, I think that's right. Anyway, he, he, he got the, they gave him his train fare to get there to speak in a debate. Uh, that's, that was why he, uh, he wanted to go. Wow. Um, and, uh, so I, I can't now remember. I can only remember the, the illness on the way there and, and the illness while I was there. I couldn't have the dinner that was also thrown in or anything. I briefly spoke to Lord Long before, before leaving the room suddenly again. Yeah. <laughs> One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at UH1.com. That's UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Your next wonder is Test Match Special. Mm. So this, this again is, so you've, you've kind of introduced us to this idea. You like sport, but not necessarily going to Lords or the Oval or Old Trafford or whatever, and it makes a big crowd. And maybe not watching it on the television even, but listening to people talking about it while they watch it. Yeah, I'm worried that my, my Seven Wonders are feeling very, very parochial. A, a little bit more telegraph than perhaps my. <laughs> they perhaps often I reveal am. more oh, about it. Well. <laughs> but you know, the selection uh, reveals more about your inner soul than you. Yeah, I think it does. I again, I mean, test match special. How you make a sport you're not watching come alive with such humour and such uh, warmth over the course of seven or eight hours. Hmm. I, I mean, I, I don't know how they do it. Um, the voices, especially Jonathan Agnew's voice, I just, I could, I could just sink into it. And um, the fact that not only is it unmissable when the cricket's on, but when the cricket is rained off, and you try to explain to someone what you're listening to, 
I'm listening to people employed to talk about cricket fill three hours while the cricket starts. And they're like, well, why, why don't they just turn this off? <laughs> you know, you wouldn't... You, what on earth are you doing? But you yeah. have to explain this. But it's about the... It's about a sort of an inheritance of, of tradition yeah. and of phraseology and of anecdotes that have gone back years and years and years. And I think it's... Um, uh, it's one I actually got to go into the test match special box. All right. Because Andy Zaltzman, the comedian, yes. is now the scorer. Yes, so the world of comedy is now invaded uh, test match special. Andy Zaltzman has, I think, the job I'm most envious of. Yes. Though I don't have the brain to do what he does. But um, to hear him on there is so strange for me, but so special as well. And I got to go up and I... Um, I, I took a bottle of champagne for Andy and for Ellie Oldroyd, yes. who works for Five Live doing the updates in the cricket, who's absolutely wonderful. Mm. And I poured them some champagne, immediately spilt the glass all over the paper scripts they had. Oh. And uh, and then I think I was informed by a producer, that's why you're not allowed champagne in the commentary box. Yes. But anyway, it was a it was a real pleasure. And I was able to peek in to the uh, through the little porthole to where all the folks of Test Match Special were. It's one of those names is slightly inaccurate. You know, it's Test Match Special because it used to just do Test Matches, but now they do all sorts of cricket. So, so they've just they've got their brand. They stick a bit like Match of the Day in football. Used to be they selected one match of the day yeah. that they showed you selected in advance, but now they show you all the matches of the mm. day. But uh, and anything they can think of. And also to hear them when it's winter here and the cricket stopped, to sort of stay up under under my duvet when I was a. Uh, a kid listening to them come from Barbados or from Chennai or from you know uh, New Zealand from Australia just the the way that they would talk about the hotels and the meal they'd had the night before and the sweltering heat yeah. and the bleachers and oh man just yeah. to have that world in your head yeah. which you don't get from TV and I think the a, a problem in commentary in lots of sports is that commentators now don't shut up they don't just let you watch they have to be giving you insight into every millimeter every single thing that's happening yeah. whereas you watch for example snooker great snooker commentary from the 80s they're not talking for most of it yes but now it's oh well he's just come a bit short on that part and that's going to hamper him and he's going to have to get the rest yeah. and all this stuff yeah. um and the best bits about tms and not necessarily when they're talking about what's happening it's when um uh, you know, Henry Blofeld is talking about the cranes or the pigeons or the buses. Yeah. And I had the great honour one year in Edinburgh uh, with the critics versus comics uh, cricket match to have Henry Blofeld commentate on my bowling. Oh, right. Yeah. And did he find uh, aspects of your bowling you, you hadn't realised were there? He was very interested by the frequency of the wides. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, you mentioned Andy Zaltzman, his side of it, which is the stats. Uh, it actually got more and more because now with computers, it's possible to say, oh, this is the uh, this the slowest 15 ever made by an Englishman batting with a, a partner of the other end who played for the same county or some yeah. uh, some fact like that, which seemed to just, there's a, there's always another record being broken. Well, I always ask Andy, uh, I always ask Andy, do stats exist or do you uh, invent them? And he's sort of, he takes a very esoteric, sort of philosophical view of statistics sort of they're they're out there in the universe and it's up for people to sort of 
catch them and discover them. But yeah, he will say stuff like this is the longest partnership between two players whose surname begins with G batting at four or five. Yes. And people in, in Test Match Special will either be absolutely in awe of him mm -hmm. or will go, Andy, stop being so silly. That's not a yeah. statistic. Well, I, I again, I, I'm suspiciously agreeing with so many of your wonders, you know, in, but uh, the... Because it strikes me that they, the commentators, see much more in a cricket game than I'm ever going to do. Uh, so that when the ball just hurtles down and the, the guy swipes at it, and you think, oh, did he nearly hit that? They can see, oh, yes, it came off the seam or there was a, there was a wobble there. It hit the, the bowler's marks or something like that. And uh, so there's, there's more in the game, as described by the commentators, than I'm ever going to see myself. Well, I'm also astonished at their memory. So... Someone will bowl and you'll hear Jonathan Ogie say, well, he reminds me of um, you know, when I first saw, uh, I don't know, yeah. Um, yeah, Glenn, yeah. Glenn, uh, Glenn, McGrath. Glenn McGrath bowling. It was 1992. Uh, it was the second test down at yeah. the Wacker. And you're thinking, how the hell do you remember <laughs> that? The, you know, the way that oh, we're talking about stuff that happened in the 60s or 70s. Yeah. Um, and my favorite thing to do is I will listen to it on... Uh, on my phone or on the radio while I'm sort of washing up or doing the chores and I'll take it around the house with me and I'll have it queued up on the telly but with about a 10 second delay so that whenever a wicket happens I, I will always be able to get to see it happen live on the telly yes. and that's my dream all right yeah you sound a little bit of an obsessive about some of these <laughs> yes. things. That, uh, we better not go on too long. Uh, we're, we're in uh, Scotland, uh, whether there's a bigger, as big a following. of I don't know how Scottish the audience is today, but uh, there's not necessarily such a strong following of cricket in Scotland as, as in England. So we've, we've perhaps covered that as well as we need. Um, so, ah, now here's, uh, here's the more rebellious side of you. Your next wonder is tea with one bag of Earl Grey tea and one bag of normal tea. So this, again, sounds like quite a homely, um, very British thing to be interested in. You have not experienced tea until you've had one bag of ordinary tea and one bag of Earl Grey tea. It, I mean, does anyone out of interest in this room do that? One gentleman in the front row there, one lady. Sir, do you keep this, pretty, this secret pretty closely guarded? He said, oh. I don't think I've ever made it for anyone other than myself. So Good for pleasure. you. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've had that. A friend of mine, the comedian John Richardson, actually, yes. yeah. uh, told me in 2006, he said uh, he'd bought some tea back from the shops. He said, right, then you, you try this. <laughs> and I said, what is it? He said, that's, uh, that's half Earl Grey, half Nordnery in the same bag. I was like, okay, I'll give that a go. And I said, John, that's incredible. You're fucking right it is. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, it's, it's mind-bending. Mind yeah. uh, John, I, I, I have had this. Have you? Not, but not even with bags, because uh, we're, we have quite a tea-ridden household where I live. And when my, my children all grown up, when they were living at home, there was a lot of interest in various teas. And my son, for some reason, liked mixing uh, Earl Grey, but but loose tea, Earl Grey mm. and uh, normal tea or property, or, or, or no, all property is theft. So I can't be that. But <laughs> but the uh, so but anyway, so I've had this mixture, and I'm afraid I'm not a big fan of Earl Grey tea. And I, if I, <laughs> when I'm given this mixture, I think yes, this is fine. But why don't you just stick to PG tips for for most of it? 
Well, because it's the punch of regular tea, yes. I would go for probably Yorkshire tea. Right, or there's apparently. a brand called Thompson's that they sell in Tesco, which is a, claims to be an Irish tea. It might just be clever marketing, but I'm hook, line, and sinker. I am all. It, I, I have this whole idea of the Thompsons family, yeah. um, you know, having been making tea for two hundred years, whereas probably someone came up with it about three years ago to go. Well, we Twining's doing an Irish breakfast tea, which is a strong tea. I could recommend that. Well, you. yeah, your strong tea. So you get the punch of that. You get the heft, and then you get the delicate, delicate fragrance of and Earl Grey and the unnecessary bergamot or whatever they put in it. Yeah, but the it just but distract detracts from the, the bergamot's taste. not too high in the mix. Yes, because it's sort of counteracted, <laughs> and um, that's my big cup of tea in the morning. And I'll yeah. tell you this: when you once you stop drinking, after a while, you come to really look forward to yes. your big cup of tea in the morning. <laughs> I think it's funny how obsessive people are about tea, including myself. I only really like tea that I've made myself. Yes. Um, I, and, and I don't drink, you know, if I'm on a, you know, a, a, a train we were talking about or a plane or most cafes, I don't like ordering tea there because I never really like it. Um, so I, I've now really switched to drinking green tea, which is harder to muck up. Yeah. You don't put milk in it and it's just a, a thing. But, but I, mean, I mean, a thing like sugar in tea, if you, if you like sugar in tea, you have to have it. If you don't like sugar in tea, you can't drink it with sugar. That doesn't apply to anything else, does it? I mean, if you say, oh, a bowl of strawberries, oh, I don't need sugar. Oh, you've put some on. Never mind. You just carry on. But with tea, it seems to matter hugely. Is this just me now taking over here? Uh, I don't know. If yeah. someone put sugar on my lasagna... Yes. I'm, I might ask yeah. for another there one. There are various ways of having all these things, but... Uh, um, yeah, I mean, I there is nothing worse than getting a tea from a sort of tea and coffee shop and they they put a tea bag in a paper cup, they fill it up with boiling water and then immediately put the milk in and then just give it to you and hope that somehow those two yeah. things will coalesce into your perfect style of tea. Because it's impossible to, to then get the ratios right afterwards. Yes. So you're kind of constantly... Either having tea that's too weak and or and too hot or too too cold and too and all this. Oh man, I once went for a meeting with a TV production company, and the guy asked if I wanted a cup of tea, and the tea was so bad it was like baby sick. It was honestly, it was almost white, and I I knew that the project wasn't gonna. I just yeah, couldn't. Didn't want to work for them. Yeah. I knew I couldn't yeah. work for these people. It was unreal that he had handed that to a, another human yeah. being and said, that's a cup of tea. Ridiculous. No good whatsoever. The other thing you get in restaurants, especially abroad, which they bring you um, the tea bag next to a, a cup with water in it that was boiled some time ago. And now you're supposed to put it in this lukewarm water when everybody knows that's the wrong way to do it. And they must know that. But they just think, ah... They're probably British and they're going to be upset by this. So, ha, ha, ha. Well, uh, <laughs> stuff that up your Brexit. <laughs> I once went to Oxford Services northbound. Ah. And I asked for a cup of tea from the Costa with one bag of Earl Grey and one bag of Ordinary. Yeah. And they'd never heard this happen before. And she said, well, I have to charge you double. I said, so how much did that cost? And it was going to be, I think it was two fifty-five for a cup of tea. So it was going to be £5.10. Yeah. And I didn't argue, but it was very annoying. And I did, it was the most angry I've ever been drinking a cup of tea. <laughs> because the price of a cup of tea isn't the tea bag, it's the water, it's the cups, it's yeah. the wages, it's oh, the marketing, yeah. it's the rent, yeah. it's everything. Yeah. But I didn't want to get into it because, like we said, 
I couldn't get in a chat with that about the lady because she's working very hard, yeah. not getting paid enough and having to deal with grumpy people at service stations, dreaming of T-Bay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but that was both the Earl most Grey, angry- Earl Grey T-Bay, your dream. Earl Grey T-Bay, yeah. 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 But it was the most expensive cup of tea I've ever had. Well, you, you went through with it. You, you were prepared yeah. to pay the price. So what I do now, and this is a great tip for anyone, this is a comedian's top tip, and people always take the mickey out of me, in my rucksack, I've got a little snap bag like you get at airport security. I say like, that's exactly where I got it from. And that is full of sachets of ketchup, mayonnaise, mustard, brown sauce. I've got salt, pepper. i got little sachets of Tabasco. You get them in Pret. Um... <laughs> The only thing I haven't got there is butter because that doesn't work. No. Um, and I've got Earl Grey tea bags. Yes. So now, whenever I want a cup of tea, I order a cup of tea. I've got my Earl Grey one to add yeah. in it, saving myself £2.55. But it just means you've essentially got a whole restaurant in your glove box. Yes. <laughs> because what sandwich can't be improved with a bit of ketchup or a bit of brown sauce or a bit of Tabasco? Yeah. So I, and you know, do they ever spot this and start charging you the equivalent of corkage? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Bring your own bag. Yes. Um, no, I've never been. I've never been caught out in this. It's great in hotels. Yeah. Just uh, you know. So as long as I've got my little bag of um, my little security bag of sachets. In fact, I did once have to take it through airport security. And um, it, I couldn't fit everything in because of my liquid. So me and the lady, she was like, do you want your Tabasco or do you want your ketchup? And I said, I'll, I'll take the Tabasco. You can yeah. have the ketchup. You could take my Tabasco, but you kind of take my Earl Grey tea bag. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, well, I think a picture of you is emerging. Um, uh, but uh, no, I, I sympathize, though. If you've got a particular taste in tea, then you, you, uh, you want to stick to it. Um, your next... Uh, wonder your sixth wonder is astral weeks hmm. uh now this is a this is an album from some time ago 1968 i think um um now you you were born long after that so so why this album and how did you get introduced to it in the first place well i was always sort of a i was never really into contemporary music when i was growing up so i always got quite a lot of uh, teasing at school i was into queen uh, in the mid '90s, which was, you know, not a particularly prolific era for Queen. No. So when you know it was Blur versus Oasis, I was sort of kept trying to shoehorn Queen into this argument, which mm. <laughs> wasn't really relevant. Yeah. Um, and my mum listened to when we were growing up, listened to lots of Fleetwood Mac and Genesis, and um, what else was she listening to? Paul Simon. Well, I'm guessing Van Morrison. She Van Morrison, be... yeah, lots yeah. of Van Morrison. Yeah. Um, and then when I was a teenager, a bit older and able to buy my own music, I did what I think people who are into older music do. And you get the sort of list of 100 greatest albums and 50 best albums ever made and 20 albums to hear before you die. And Astral Weeks was always there or thereabouts. Yeah. So I think I first listened to it when I was about 22 and found it a bit strange. So it didn't make sense. Some of the some of the way his voice was was quite disconcerting felt quite screechy and angular at times and and i remember thinking oh well that that song madam george is quite good and then a couple of weeks later i'd pick it up and whack it back on and and over the course of that year it it just grew to a point at which i realized i was listening to something truly uh truly unique very very special it's an album for me about 
being a teenager about the intensity of emotion about how otherworldly life can seem when you're in love or when you are um, exploring the world and it's been with me ever since and the 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 poetry of it, it it's one of the few rock records i think stands up to actually being read mm. as poetry um van morrison his work in the 60s and 70s and 80s i've loved not quite sure he's managed to keep that train on the rails um anyone who's heard his recent output will have found it as baffling and bizarre as you know, it, he's got sort of sort of anti-lockdown songs, yes. which is just bizarre. But then I don't think people, I don't think human beings are designed to be rich and famous. I know very, very few people who handled that or coped with it without going insane. Yeah. Um, so I don't necessarily expect my idols to be <laughs> particularly nice people. Yeah. because I very much doubt that given the money and fame that those people have, I would stay normal. Um, uh, but that album, I just don't, I just, I would like to listen to it before I die. You know, if I had one yes. wish, it would be, you know, let's have a test match special on for a couple of hours and then whack on Astral Weeks. Weeks. And it's I'll be good to go. Madame George. I was, I was listening to this last night like that. I haven't listened for a long while, I have to admit. And Madame George does stand out as a fantastic uh, track for me. So Yeah. Yeah. Um, but he wrote it when and recorded it when he was 22. I, um, I know. I think, it, I think over the recording sessions, he was 21 and turned 22. Yeah. And it's just something that comes out of that. So few people at that young age are able to temper the intensity of emotion you have as a teenager with just a knack for finding the right words and images to not I mean I wrote poetry when I was a teenager yeah if anyone found it I would jump into the North Sea <laughs> and it's in a bag in my loft which yeah, I, refer, right, we'll, we'll, I refer to yeah. as the bag of death yes and it is amongst the most self-absorbed poorly written woe is me not not a single i mean if there's a metaphor in it it's probably about the pen being a sword or yeah. or my love being a rose i mean to to ha to have the imagery to the he, there's a line in the dynamo of your smile yeah wow <laughs> i mean isn't yeah. that insane yeah and i mean, he, and oh and and he was living through quite tough times. He was in New York trying to record things. He was in dispute with his record company. The guy running it died. His widow blamed him. It was it was a very complicated time for him. And he'd made he'd made a some a commercial record. They wanted to make more like that. Yeah, Brown Eyed Girl or something. It was, wasn't it? But, yeah, so. he he didn't make any money out of Brian Brown Eyed Girl because uh, the contract he'd signed. And bizarrely this sort of idea that he's somehow been ripped off has stayed with him all the way through his career. Yeah. So, you know, he must be, he's probably worth a hundred million, still bitter about having been ripped off in yes. the 60s. And you think, mate, come on. Yeah. <laughs> you know, surely yeah. now things are okay, but... Uh, well, I, th I think the uh, the record industry, the music industry, has a long and not particularly proud tradition of ripping off young artists and they get into contracts and they don't get paid. 
and they become bitter about it. And so it, their their second and third album is often about that. Yes, <laughs> he's got songs. Yeah, he has yeah, so yeah. many songs about contracts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's got songs about contracts, songs about the government website, the COVID website. He actually has a song which says, <laughs> the government website, the government website. And you're like, man, you need to chill out and stop making music. Yes. Just retire. Yeah. But this is the thing. I don't think people are designed to be rich and famous because so have it's... You, oh, sorry, you, you've, um, have, have you have a chance to meet him? Because I think you should. your opening remarks should be, you know, you're at your best with Astral Weeks. You might as well stop, stop bothering now. I think I would They be... love that, people being told what they did um, decades ago. Was... Hey, I also think his 1990 album Enlightenment is fantastic. I think he had a great 80s, Poetic Champions Composed, No Guru, No Method, No Teacher. His first five albums are flawless. He had a sort of dodgy late 70s. I love a Common One. I love, I love St. Dominic's Preview. The man is a genius, but he just needs to stop. Okay. No one's forcing you to make music, we, man. We just need to stop. I see we're overrunning. You've got one more wonder to do, though, and it's a local wonder. It's the uh, Dagdar pub in the Clue Street, just around the corner here. And I, I, was, I was doing my research on this. I must have walked past that pub oh, dozens of times, hundreds of times. So I went, I, I think I'll go and have a drink before we do the podcast. But I left it too late, so I just walked past it one more time. But I did photograph it on the way by just to prove it to myself I'd been there. What is it about that pub? Can you do that in a few seconds? Nope. <laughs> um, so, you know, as someone who uh, drank for a long time, uh, I, I know an awful lot of pubs. I was obsessed with pubs. I am obsessed with pubs. I love pubs. They are, I, they're magic. They're where I went to change how I felt. They're where I went to meet friends, to console, to celebrate, to find community. I think pubs connect to something very uh, very English, very Celtic, very Scottish, very Scandinavian, very Northern European, which is that need for heat, light, warmth. I can imagine that seeing a fire in a mead hall in the 11th century meant so much. It meant you were safe. And I think there's something about the glow that comes out of a pub at 10 o'clock in the evening on a dark, quiet street that brings us into whatever that is in our DNA. And I think that's why the pub has such a hold over us. I presented a pub podcast with not a dissimilar format to this for two years that we started in lockdown where guests would come to choose their favorite drinks and talk about what pubs meant to them. And it did mean community and it meant friendship and it meant the place where you laugh and cry and meet your partner and all of these things in a building where a lot of people just go to get hammered and make a scene but it's not just about that it's about something more than that they're museums they are living museums of our community if you want to go and see a photo of what your high street looked like 200 years ago it's going to be in your local pub because unless you know where the weird little museum that the odd guy runs of your local town, the pubs are, are yeah. the only thing that connects us back to Why those times. Why this pub? Why the Dagdar? I'm sorry to hurry you, but... Uh... Well, of all the pubs I've ever been to, uh, the Dagdar just felt like it ticked every box of my long list of boxes of what I want from a pub. 
It, the staff were friendly, but could be brusque when needed. The beers kept extraordinarily well. They've got a nice selection. The music, the first time I went in there, they were playing Astral Weeks. No. Yeah. <laughs> they probably still are. They, they, <laughs> some they, pubs don't change. They sometimes put it on when I go in because I've got to know some of the people who work there over the years. Um, the, the people who go there, there's a nice mixture of regulars, of tourists and of people, sort of students. Uh, the layout is fantastic. It's just a big square with a bar in the middle. They've got good snacks. And that's all I want from a pub. And I won't be going there this year because the draw of it is too strong. It's t it, it promises too much. I've come to an awareness that I am no longer able to change my feelings in the way that pubs previously did. However, I still have a huge amount of affection for them and for the service they provide in a society which you know, let's be honest, is increasingly lonely for some people. And if you can go to the pub and have a five minute chat with someone who works at the bar or someone who's sat at the bar, that might be the only connection you have with another human being that week. Um, and I think they're really important. Um, that said, they're all they're for everyone. So if you go into a pub and you're a man and there's a woman having a drink on her own, leave her the fuck alone. <laughs> probably doesn't want to be hassled by you or be talked at by you um, because, you know, everyone should feel safe and that the pubs are oh. a place for sharing their Did time. Did you have a, an emotional experience in this particular pub? Every single time Every I've single <laughs> ever been into well, the Dagda, I've had I'm an emotional afraid, experience. I'm afraid I've got to call time, gentlemen, please, uh, to because uh, um, we've overrun and I'll get ticked off for that. Uh, I just have to select your wonder of wonders, the, the, the oh. wonder that I think you have argued the best for. And you've got so many good wonders there that I agree with. I, I suppose I ought to put Durham Cathedral or something grand like that. But I think I'm going to make it tea Bay services because I, I think <laughs> that was the one that... <laughs> so, so uh, John Robbins, thank you so much for sharing your wonders with us. John Robbins. If you enjoyed this episode of My 7 Wonders, it would be wonderful if you could rate and review us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you found us. Thank you for listening. My 7 Wonders with Clive Anderson is a Stack production and part of the Acast Creative Network.